I'm Jason. And I'm Maddie. And this is Making Sense of Chaos. A podcast about death and dying, love, grief and hope. On our show, we talk to all kinds of people who through various trajectories have found themselves trying to explain the unexplainable. Trying to accept the unacceptable. Trying to make sense of chaos. A few weeks ago, Jason and I received an email from one of our listeners who expressed an interest in coming on the podcast. We've changed her name to Kate for privacy reasons. Here she starts by telling us her story. I am the sister of a man, young man, um, who has now been incarcerated in a prison overseas for nearly seven years. And our story has definitely been one where we have felt completely isolated, haven't known where to turn, haven't known what to do um, and how to move forward. Um, And I guess over time we've carved our own path with that But the thing that I was really not expecting was how my feelings towards the situation would change um, and the guilt and the shame and all the cycles of that that have come up since his arrest and and in our families grappling with the situation. And so there's quite a few people that I have spoken to that are close to me that understand, I guess, the difficulties in loving someone who you sometimes always sometimes also hold resentful feelings towards um and it is not it's not an easy place to sit in but I also think it's not discussed very often because people would never want to admit to having those sort of complicated feelings about someone that they love so I think my interest in coming on the podcast was to talk about that because I think that experience again, has been quite weird and rare, but I also know that there's probably a lot of people that are sitting in situations where they hold really conflicting feelings towards someone that they should feel, I guess, just heartbroken about or traumatised by the situation. So that was my motivation, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, um, Kate, if you can take us back to the day um, or days when you found out that this was going to be your reality where um, he was going to be in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that time period. Yeah, and I'll go back a little bit further, actually. I think it's important to note that um, my brother Matt is neurodivergent and when we were growing up there was always a sense of like, He's such a funny, sarcastic, quick-witted, big-hearted person, but he is incredibly complex and was a challenging child. Um, And as he grew into a teenager, was challenging again and had a period where he really settled down. Um, But then in his mid-20s, we really kind of got the sense that we were losing him a little bit 
And I suppose any family that's been through maybe drug addiction or severe mental health, someone might be able to relate to that feeling of just watching this hurtling train and knowing that you can't do anything to stop it. Um, So he had moved over to Asia and had been there on and off for about two and a half years. And I remember having this really, I have this really clear memory of this night sitting in the garden with my dad about two months before he was arrested. And I was like, if he dies over there, how responsible are we for what happens? Because we can see that there's all these indications. There were signs that he was connected to drugs and that he was doing things that were potentially illegal. We didn't know at the time. Um, But like I said, the behaviour was really erratic. The way he was speaking to people was really erratic. Um, And I just thought, if we don't do something, have we had a hand in his own, his death? Are we responsible for any part of that? Um, But again, it was like, what do you do? He's a grown man. So that was really difficult, sitting in that space for probably about a year, knowing that something bad was going to happen and I suppose waiting for a call of some nature. And then the day that we actually found out, I was living back at my mum's for a short period and it was like 6 o'clock in the morning in the dead of winter and my phone went off and I looked at my phone I could see it was my dad calling and I thought, oh, he's called me by accident, so I ignored it. And he called me again and I thought, okay, this is weird, picked it up. And he just said, where's your mother? And I said, she's in her room. And he's like, go and wake her up and call me back. Okay, so I went into mum's room and, you know, told her and I just thought the whole time I just started, I remember shaking and just feeling sick and I just knew whatever was going to be on the end of that call, our lives were going to be different. I could just tell. Um, So we called back and my dad said, I've had a call from him. He's told me he's been arrested. He's been arrested for something to do with drugs. We couldn't really hear what he was talking about. He was rambling really quickly. And then before I know it, the call had just hung up. And we just, my mum, I just remember she was just sitting there. She couldn't say anything. She just, her eyes were just so open. She was so shocked. And we tried to take in the information. I just don't think you can. You we, and because, of course, we, I was asking questions of my dad. He didn't have the answers. We found out later that the police had literally let Matt call my dad off his mobile really quickly and that information was all we had, like no way to call him back, no way to get in touch with any police, no idea what to do. Um, and I remember wrapping up the call with my dad. He was going to call us back as soon as he had more information and just my mum just going, okay, I've got to have a shower. Like we, we both had to go to work. And I heard her walk into the bathroom and I heard her howl and I have never heard anything like it. It was so shocking. So we were just in shock, in absolute shock. And I remember driving to work and just thinking this is going to be resolved somehow. And having no idea at the time just how serious it was and just how long this whole process was going to be. So that was the first day. And I think within a couple of 
days, I want to say. My dad had flown over um, and had literally got into cabs and just driven around to anyone, you know, knocked on the door of embassies and driven around to prisons until he finally could locate him. Um, And all of that has been its own trauma too, you know. I worry about what this has done to my father's life expectancy. Both of my grandmothers have passed away while Matt has been overseas, Um, both of them knowing that they weren't going to see him again. You know, I have two other elderly grandfathers. There's all of that stuff wrapped up into it, you know. It's not just, it is the trauma of what is happening to him and the horrendous conditions that he has lived in and things that he has endured over there. The other stuff, the stuff to my grandparents, the stuff to my parents, that stuff that's been brought to us um, and even the stuff that I grapple with is, you know, his sister. So there is such a weird sense of, you know, feeling so heartbroken and feeling like you want to do everything to help him and then being so angry about what it's taken from all of you. So... It's probably a very long answer to your question, yeah. but that's the beginning of our journey anyway. Yeah, and you were saying um, we, when we had a quick phone call, um, you were saying that it's such a complex kind of grief. Um, and I was telling Jace about this before um, because, you know, Jace wasn't on that phone call and and the, the millions of emotions that are conflicting and are not necessarily accepted emotions that you hear Mm. about, especially that anger. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's what's so special about you coming on this podcast and deciding this is something I'm willing to speak about because, as we said, it's something that other people in different situations as well would be experiencing, you know, shame around their own emotions. So, yeah like it's double shame upon shame it really is it's such a big cycle and I think you know in the first couple of years everybody in the family has had a different I guess process with it some of us have softened some of us have hardened Um, I think you know it really cracked open something in my dad and for the first couple of years he was much softer and much more empathetic Um, And I think as time has gone on, you know, there's people in my family, one of my grandfathers, my mother, who are definitely still in that space of heartbreak and grief. And I think, you know, like I said to you, one of the things that I really struggle with is how much I've hardened over the years and the shame that I have felt about that. And part of that is because of the relationship between him and I, at first it was very like heartbroken space. We were both sitting in this heartbroken space where he was really remorseful and I was just in shock and just in grief. And it's moved now to this, in his fear, he's grasping and he'll send me letters. You're not doing enough. You need to be doing this. Why aren't you doing this? I would be doing this if I were you why aren't you care, like, why don't you care, why don't you get me the help that I need? Um, And that's really difficult. It's really, really difficult to feel and to know that you aren't doing enough and yet feeling so paralysed by your own feelings of guilt and shame. I mean, 
you guys might have more of an understanding of that than I do in terms of the way those types of processes work. But I think, for example, sometimes I'll get a letter from him and it can take me 10, 12 days to open it because I know in that letter it's going to be hard things to read about the conditions that he lives in and then there's going to be a part where he tells me I'm not doing enough, which makes me feel guilty and then I feel so ashamed that I don't even want to deal with it and I avoid it and this cycle just goes round and round and round and it's really difficult. You just feel burnt out. You feel like you haven't got anything left to give and, you know, with the situation as it is, I can't change as much as he thinks I can and that is something that I feel a lot of shame over you know I'm just never doing enough and that's really hard and that's something that I will have to face when he comes home also so hey with the doing enough the the thing that I think of straight away is what's your idea of enough When, when when he's asking you to do these things or making these assertions that you're not doing enough. What, what is that? What, what, what does he want? What do you think he wants? It's a really good question. I think he just wants us to, some of the requests are so large, they're not possible for me to do. He wants me to have international laws changed and he wants me to have, you know, so stuff like that, that is so massive that you think, surely you must know that I can't do this. But even the fact that he will ask me to look into that kind of stuff and it sets off that, well, what can I do? At least if I can go back and say, look, I tried this, but this is where I was stopped, you know, Um, that sometimes feels like enough. Um, But other times I think it's also my own guilt about I don't feel like I'm there enough, like I'm not writing him enough letters or I'm not even thinking about him enough. Sometimes I'll have two or three days that go past in a row and I don't think about him at all and I feel huge amounts of shame about that. And I don't know whether that's me being avoidant or me just being getting on with my life. But then that sets off its own cycle of feeling like, well, yeah, this is my life and he's there because of, you know, consequences of his actions and I'm here because of mine. Um, but it's so complicated because, you know, I'm looking at a child that had a that came into the world with a completely different set of, you know, factors that changed his life circumstances. So in terms of doing enough, I don't really know what would feel like was doing enough. I think if he felt I was doing enough, I could cope. But yeah. the fact that he tells me very explicitly that I don't, that's difficult. And trying to hold on to the fact that you are trying your best without feeling so guilty and so full of shame is is difficult. It's interesting that if he was to communicate to you that almost thanking you in some way or acknowledging the efforts or the the impact that it's having on, on on you and the family i wonder whether that would 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 change the way the shame the fear the that sense that you're not that that you're not doing enough or that you're not thinking about it enough or that you're 
you're you're interpreting it in, in a way like I wonder do you think that would change your experience yeah. of this I think it would definitely like I feel like for so many years I've been pushing this unrelenting weight up a hill and I can't push it up anymore so now I'm just holding it where it is you know it's this stagnancy because I know that even if it feels like I've done enough on his medical stuff I haven't done enough on his legal stuff and if I've done enough there I haven't done enough here and I think yeah if he if I felt like but again, I feel like all that stuff comes from his own fear and anxiety and it's so tied into like how he feels about his situation, which is also really hard, you know. Of course, if he felt okay, I'd be okay. And that help, um, helplessness that he would be feeling is always going to be there when he's in this situation and I, I wonder if that gets transferred onto you in some ways. Well, I think it gets transferred into an anger at us because we don't understand you know um and that said I've got to say he is so amazingly resilient like so many people have said to us so many families have said family members have said to us if it was me you know it would be a different story like the actual physical conditions and I must say like the prison have been amazing with us always from the start um and he has been treated like any other prisoner, but I suppose all of his fears and concerns have turned into this hyper-focus on his health Mm. and that has just spiralled into these requests um, that he sends all of us. And and each of us get different requests, you know. He he sends us all drawings from prisons that he'll have other, other prisoners do for cigarettes. These poor guys, they must be chained to their pencils because the rate that we get them. Um, but, you know, my mother is constantly being harassed to send him the images that he can use for drawing and they have to be this quality and she has to send this many and she has to send this many a month. And so it's just, it's never ending. But I also fear that he's now been in a pattern of, asking, demanding, and then telling us we're not good enough or not doing enough for so long, like what's it going to be like when he comes back? I don't understand. I fear that the most. I want him to come back. I can't wait for him to be back and to be living life with us. But the fear of having those very real conversations with him where I have to atone for what I have or haven't done and he also has to learn how to be a person in the world that isn't just constantly grasping and feeling like the victim. Um, yeah, that's really difficult as well. Uh, Kate, um, it, it, the comment you just made then just made me sort of draw back to the initial things that you mentioned around that anticipation, that year anticipation that you had not knowing what, what was going to happen. Um, in terms of his, this is before he got incarcerated, when he was going downhill and his and his, his health was deteriorating, versus when you got that call around his incarceration, that so you obviously may have feared that he may die, that he may that that he'll come to an end in that way, but then you found out that he wasn't dead, and but rather he was incarcerated. And that's all you knew, I'm, I'm assuming. 
what what's the differences there in, in your own sort of experience how how because you obviously had the, the fear of death versus the fear of and the reality of actually losing him in a different way well i'm absolutely convinced that if he wasn't arrested he'd be dead like there is no question in my mind other people could debate it we will will, will of course never know but I am sure that if he wasn't arrested when he was he would be dead um because of some of the things that he was involved in and some of the things that he was doing so in some ways it was such a relief you know to hear oh god he's just been arrested like we can deal with that um but the naivety of it as well was also thinking that we could get out of it somehow, you know. We were just going to call someone and explain the situation and get out of it somehow. Um, and, of course, that wasn't the reality of it. So I think in those early days there was a huge relief. But at the time, too, we had no idea how severe they were going to punish him for what had happened. And I remember... Um, another person that was involved in his case was sentenced before he was and we had the feeling that the other person was going to get a more harsher sentence than Matt was and I remember getting the call from my mum and I said what did the other guy get what did the other guy get and she was kind of dancing around it and I said well what did Matt get and she didn't say anything at first and I said what mum what did what what did they say about Matt And she said, oh, two life sentences, two 50-year sentences. And I just thought, no, we had not been prepared for that at all. Like the legal support that we had had over there, all the indications from all the conversations that we'd had with people over there, we just had no idea that that was a reality. And so I think in answer to your question, I think it changes. It's changed from the beginning. It was relief and then the shock, and then the absolute despair of hearing that it was two life sentences. You don't sit in anyone's space with it for a long time because, of course, then he gets sick. So all of a sudden we'd been going along well for a couple of years and he seemed like he was doing really well and, well, as well as he could and settling and what have you, and then he gets sick. He gets really quite physically ill. And then there's the thought of what happens if he dies over there? what then? Like, I just think there's been these constant cycles of not understanding what's going to happen next, having absolutely no direction. Like I'm talking none. You don't get handed a pamphlet that says, you know, so your brother's been arrested overseas. This is what's going to happen. Um, And so trying to work out what to do and leaving each of those situations just to roll into another more difficult one or one that we weren't expecting is just, and I think that's part of the hardening too. You get to a point, you know, right now we have had um, confirmation that Matt has COVID um, and isn't showing any symptoms but is in the hospital that they've set up at the prison. And that has caused, you know, my grandfather a lot of anxiety and it's really hurt my mum a lot she's really suffering with it and I just feel detached I just feel like this is just another thing in this really long saga that we're dealing with 
And again, that just makes me feel really bad. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Why do you think that that detachment has to occur? You know, I was talking to a friend about this at breakfast this morning and she said, well, you couldn't live in that space of the initial grief for all these years because you'd never do anything else. Mm -hmm. Like you wouldn't be able to get on and do your job and go to uni and do all the other life responsibilities you have. And I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it too is like if I sit in that space, like even the words, my brother is in prison, I have said those so many times, but they don't sit anywhere in my body. I think that's what it is. And then sometimes it catches me unawares. Like there's a movie my flatmate and I went to see recently and I was totally unprepared for a scene at the end where the protagonist is thrown into an overseas prison and has his head shaved and goes through the whole nine yards and what have you. And I just broke, like this is like two months ago, I was bawling so much. When the lights came on, I just couldn't get myself together and I was getting really upset and I was really ashamed that I just couldn't pull myself together. And so I think part of it is that because there's a huge amount of guilt in you know, I had a really nice day today. I went to the gym and I did this or I swam in the ocean. And then to think he's sharing a cell with how many people with not really even a mattress or, you know, it's just too hard to hold those things all the time. I think, I think, but that's part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast too. I think there's a part of me that wants to be cracked back open and wants to even talking about how painful some of these memories are there's like a sense of emotion that hasn't been there for me for a really long time um so yeah it's complicated Mm, it's always that question whether you need to be broken apart completely and absolutely torn into a million pieces to be able to start or even accept the hit that the healing process um it's, 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 even that is very unknown, you know, how to even, how to even un- come to understand what to do, how to feel about it. Um, and it's the reshattering too, right? Like every time we get bad news, it's another shattering of the equilibrium that we had built for ourselves. Um, and that said, like, there's still been, good parts over the years and there's been funny things over the years like it hasn't all been doom and gloom there have been bits where he's been really good and you know we've been coping and but yeah I think you know just even with this COVID situation it's just another thing where the goalposts are just moved again and everything's thrown up into disarray again so the breaking open thing I guess back like I said again Part of it is because you can't keep doing that. You can't just keep living in a space where you drop every time you get this bad news. Um, But I also think a part of it is, you know, I'm very aware that we are experiencing this trauma because of his actions and his, you know, the consequences of that. So that is 
a completely different layer again, which is really complicated. And is that related in any way to that that anger? Um, yeah. That, that resentment, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's things like, you know, when my grandmothers were both dying, you should be here for this. And every time I speak to my grandfather now, I, I know at one point in the call he's going to ask me, have you heard about Matt? What's going on with Matt? And, the, and he will, he gets really emotional. He, you know, he's always crying when we talk about it still, like six years in, every time we talk about Matt, he cries. And that makes me really angry because there's also a part of it that's like no matter what I do in my life, like no matter what I achieve or I will never be able to make up for the hole that has been left there. And I think too, like, you know, my grandfather's 88 and he says quite often, I don't know if I will see him be a free man and, you know, I want you to look after him and I don't want you to, you know, be angry with him when he comes home. They're really hard conversations to have um, with people you love. And it makes me really, yeah, that part makes me really angry. And where does that anger go when, when you're in that space, when you're feeling resentment, what, what next for you? I think this is a good time to plug therapy, isn't it? Therapy, can I just say? <laughs> Everyone should get it if they can. Um, I think there has been, you know, it's been really helpful learning to just be compassionate with myself and with those feelings and just let that be. And I think and that's another reason why um, I feel comfortable now talking about the shame because the anger isn't misplaced. It's just there and it's taken a long time for me to just accept that that's okay too. You know what I mean? Like I don't have to pretend that I'm not angry or try and push that anger down because it's not helping anyone. Like it's actually easier for me to just sit with it and allow it to be there. Um, I found too with those feelings of like the shoulds and shouldn'ts, like I should be doing more, I should be writing to him more. It doesn't do anything for me. It doesn't motivate me to write to him more. It doesn't motivate me to, you know, contact anyone more. So I think I've come to a space where I can say these feelings are coming up and I recognise what they are and where they've come from um, and I can choose to act on them or I don't have to and that's been really healthy for me. But I do worry about the other coping mechanisms of people, other people in my family, you know. There's definitely been an increase in, I guess, unhealthy coping mechanisms in other people um, and we all shoulder it differently. But, yeah, I think at, in this stage of it, I'm letting that anger be there um, and treating it as just another part of this because there's still all the heartbreak too and there is still all the joy when he sends me letters talking about, you know, all the great things he remembers from our childhood, for example. It's the whole gamut of emotions. It's not just constantly anger. Um but, yeah, just learning to sit with those and, and try not to let that set off that 
tirade of you should be doing more and you're not doing enough and you're not good enough because that's what was happening for a good 18 months I reckon Mm. and I guess it's it's interesting um, because something I often think about is how like there's those two competing sides of your brain there's like there's that rational side and that emotional side and of course you always want to go to the rational side and maybe with you it's like what you're talking about with he he put himself in this position and and going through all the the intellectuals of the situation but then there's that emotional side that is probably a lot bigger um that Mm. can't necessarily is, is often sort of dictated um and is is often the one that's more in control and yeah, I guess that that's just sort of what was going through my head, how those two sides of the brain are constantly competing with each other. And you sit at it, you sit in them in different spaces and for different periods of time. Like I think for that first year, maybe two years, the emotional side was just, you know, completely took over. And yeah, I think you're right. There are times where you rationalize the situation because you literally can't deal with thinking about what it all means emotionally. Mm. And I know the same, you know, goes for him. Like he'll have days where he's not necessarily thinking about me, for example, because he's busy and there's things going on there that he's focused on and doing. So I'm really glad that my parents understand. I think even though we all cope with it differently, they really understand how difficult it has been to sit in this position with all of this stuff. And I think um, I haven't felt isolated in that way, but I do feel more and more isolated. Like I find I tell people less, talk about it less. It's always that big thing that you're waiting for the right time to tell a new friend or a boss or what have you. And I'm finding that it's becoming less and less something I want to discuss with people. Um, Partly that's because, you know, like you've had other guests on your podcast say, people say really dumb shit, really horribly thought out, not maliciously intended, but, you know, I've had close friends ask me if he looks like a prisoner of war, if he's eating do I think he's sick do I think they chain him up like why would you ask me any of those questions so and I think because of the novelty of it for some people you know it's not very often that you come across someone that is in a foreign prison especially in a prison that in Asia where there's been lots of you know rumors and I guess um salacious news about people are naturally curious and they turn it into this I guess it's just a morbid curiosity on their behalf and so there's a part of it that you're like yeah but you don't get it you don't get what it's like to sit on Christmas day and have everyone really upset about this or and again it 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 feels, I know there's a lot of people that will probably be listening to this and thinking how selfish that is because they've lost loved ones, you know, through misadventure or through death or whatever and thinking, well, this young man's done this to himself. Um, 
it doesn't make it hurt any less that he's not here. So, yeah. You actually, you're actually drawing closer to where my question, I'm sure Maddie's got a similar question. I can just tell by her face. Um, uh, about this taking a, a bigger standpoint, almost more of a philosophical look at it. How, how has this sort of impacted your life, like in terms of how you how you function day to day life, like, like the, the greater meaning of what life's all about? How has how has this changed it or made it different? I think we're a really ordinary family, and the fact that this could have happened to anyone, essentially, but it happened to us, is a hard one to wrap your head around, you know. Um, I think it's made me more aware of how little we can control Um, and it's made me more aware of how important it is to live a life where your values are really prioritised over things that you might be doing. you know, in terms of who do you want to be in the world? How do you want to show up in the world? And also just, you know, people can stuff up really, really badly and they can still be good people and you can still love them. So I think it's given me more of a definitely less judgmental of other people's circumstances um, and has definitely deepened my understanding of, you know, I think, a lot of people assume that you end up where my brother is because you've made a lot of bad choices. And on one hand, I rationalise that, yes, that's true. But like I said, he was also dealt a completely different set of cards to me. So I don't know what it was like to grow up neurodivergent and to be bullied for that. And I don't know what it's like to cope with the things that he was coping with as a young man, for example. So I think I've just become a lot less naive about how people get to the places that they end up and a lot more open and empathetic about, you know, supporting people and the idea of second chances and all that kind of stuff. It's definitely forged more intimacy, I think, with family members and what have you, I remember quite soon, maybe in the first two years after it happened, we have another brother. I have another younger brother as well. We just told our parents everything. It was like we told our parents all the bad things we'd ever done and, you know, there was this real, I had conversations with my dad that I'd never had in my life and there was this real sense of like let's get open, let's get honest and let's just tell each other everything because, I think there was a sense of shock when Matt was first arrested that like each of us knew little bits but we weren't telling each other because we didn't want, you know, mum and dad to know that we had found out this or what have you. And then after it all happened, my grandfather was like, why did nobody tell me any of this was going on? And so it was like a reset for the whole family. And I think from that space we have been a lot more honest and that has fostered some more beautiful relationships in our family. Yeah, wow. But at a huge cost, yeah. It's like fast-forward intimacy. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And 
you you get chucked into roles that you're not expecting. Like my dad on one trip, the first trip I went to see him, I just remembered all of like feeling all of a sudden we weren't just father anymore. We were like I was having to take on this meeting with this legal person and he was going to do this and we were a team and you know, I was there to support him just as much as he was there to support me. And, you know, there are times where you don't like doing, you know, the forced advocacy that comes with a situation like this. But at other times it's been really nice to know that I, like I know there's times where I've really helped my dad and I know there's times that my brother has really been there for me through all of this and those situations and those roles wouldn't necessarily have been there if this didn't happen. so much there I I yeah I think it's just I mean I'm getting quite emotional listening to to what you're saying Kate and um yeah I I guess I I, you know I'm wondering is there anything that you'd like to end on or anything particular that is coming up for you as you're speaking and as you're going through Uh, the whole history of of something that you probably haven't addressed in a while. I definitely think it sounds a bit cliche, but resolving stuff with people where you can, when you can, Mm. Um, like I said, both of my grandmother's passing while he was over there was really, really hard. And so making sure that those opportunities for intimacy and, and creating a deeper relationship with your parents or your family, no matter how old you are, which all sounds very cliche, um, but I think more than anything for anyone that is sitting in a situation where they feel like they shouldn't be so angry with someone they love, you know, especially someone that's died or someone that has been incarcerated or been put in a situation like this, it's just knowing that those feelings are okay, that they're valid, they won't always be there but they will change but just because you're having them there's like nothing wrong with you it's okay to feel completely <laughs> overwhelmed angry resentful sometimes selfish guilty shameful the whole thing all of it is just another part of the human experience and I think keeping that stuff inside and feeling really bad about it can really make you feel sick Um, so it's important that people can feel like they have space to communicate those feelings to people they trust, um, and not be afraid of doing that. Yeah. And on that note, keep laughing. I got a really bad haircut once when we went to go and see him. Uh, Just before we went into the jail, my grandfather, the prison guards, my dad, everyone in the prison was like (laughs) cracking up. It was like the highlight of the trip, my bad haircut you know people still talk about this to this day so find the joy what was it what haircut uh, did you get they just couldn't speak English I pointed to a picture they thought I was pointing to another picture they put an apprentice on it and then someone else came in and it got to a point where my brother was just going get out of the chair get out of the chair (laughs) and um you know hold on to the joy where you can it's not all bad Well, I think I'm just thinking that there's 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 nothing worse than a, getting a haircut and it's going wrong. It's it's deteriorating and you know it, 
and you've got someone there looking at you as you're getting it done, that's never good. And then have tables and tables of shaved head prisoners laughing at you for having the worst haircut out of the lot. You don't know my pain. (laughs) So, yeah, so find the joy, hold on to the joy. Even in the darkest shit, there's always something funny to laugh at. Yeah, there's humour in the darkness. (laughs) Yeah, well, well, thank you so much, Kate, for coming on. And, um, yeah, I guess, yeah, I can't thank you enough for, for being willing to share your story.